Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, everybody. I just wanted to mention, Robert talked to you guys a little bit about, uh, about VBS. If you would like to, we printed a bunch of these little flyers. If you want to take just as many of them as you want, if we run out this Sunday, I'll make some more next week to give to any families or children that you would love to know, have an opportunity to come and hear the gospel. Those are on the information table in the back, so feel free to grab them. All right, so here's the deal. I've been sick for four days, very, very sick, and I had an option this morning. I could either take the medicine that has made me feel better and made my voice sound normal or preach to you without narcotics. I elected to preach to you without narcotics, thinking that you would be more forgiving of my voice than very poor theology and rambling thoughts of some crazy guy up here. So, my voice is a gift to you because it was either that or all sorts of scrambled thoughts and things like that, which is the opposite of what we want. So I'm going to begin our time in prayer. As I do, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to go on an island in Mark chapter 9 from our journey through Romans. And I think it's going to serve us well where we are in Romans and where we will be going in Romans. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat right in front of you. And it'll be either on page 661 or 844. Y'all ready for this? Here we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you tell us that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. That the message of the gospel had power, not because of the ones who told it, but because of the very power that rested in the truth of the gospel. Thank you that you do not need perfect messengers or working voices. Your word is enough for your people this morning. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people who are hungry for that very word. That our hearts and our minds, our souls, our spirit, our attention, our strength, everything that makes us who we are would be focused on the cross this morning. And, Father, as we think of the cross and as we think about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, that we would enter into an eternal kingdom. On this Memorial Day weekend, it is appropriate that we thank you for those who gave their life so that we could have the freedoms that we have this morning. Thank you for all of those who gave the sacrifice of their life for the kingdom that we live in here in the United States. As imperfect as it is, Father, we recognize that that sacrifice points to a greater, deeper sacrifice for a kingdom that will never end and a peace that will last forever and ever. Father, this morning, may we see the glory of your son. May we see what we are rescued from, the horrors of the consequence of our sin. And may we know how to live in between those truths. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, um, Mark chapter 9, like I said, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to be sipping on water all throughout the morning, but let's get started. Okay, this morning we're going to look at three different scenes in Mark chapter 9. 
And at each of those, this is going to move pretty quick, by the way. So if you're a note taker, go ahead and ramp up your efforts this morning. We're going to look at three scenes. And in each of those three scenes, I've got a few comments that I want to make. And as we do this, uh, if y'all would throw up kind of the main slide again. Here's what I want you to, here's kind of the overarching thing that I want you to realize. That we are, right now, you and I, we are living between glory and horror. That, that is the reality. I know that using the word horror on a Sunday morning is not something that we get excited about. But if we're going to look at God's word in a real way, we need to look at it the way he really gives it to us. And what we realize as we work through this scripture is that you and I, as we, lead, as we live right now in this moment in time, we are living between glory and horror. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 9, starting with glory. We'll start in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. He was changed before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And I love Peter. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter's the kind of guy who's like, I don't know what to say. I better say something. And I appreciate that guy personally. Some of you really appreciate that guy. And a cloud, verse 7, overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So all of us can appreciate Peter a little bit here. Something incredible is happening. The the verses that we've already looked at in the call to worship, what Logan read to us, what Robert read to us, were all about the Son of God in his majesty. And the point of it is, you can't really put that into words. There's some things we can use to sort of describe it, the the way that the Bible many times describes the majesty uh, of Jesus. You've got this this white clothing. Uh, You could sort of think, this is kind of reversing the illustration a little bit, but you could sort of think of a bride on her wedding day, no blemish, perfection, bright, shining center of attention. That's a pretty good illustration of it. But the point is, Peter cannot come up with a great way to, to express this, he's left without words. So instead he's like, anybody want to build a tent? Which is interesting to me. He's like, oh, this will be good. We'll just camp out. We'll hang out with Jesus, Moses, Elijah. It'll be a really good time. But what we find is that later Peter finds his voice. And it's written for us in 2 Peter. This will appear on the screen. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. He's talking about the message that they bring in the gospel. And here's what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's saying, I saw this. I saw the majesty, the perfection, the glory, the honor, the esteem due to Jesus, the Son of God, beloved by the Father, lifted up. I saw it, verse 17. 
For when he, being Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter eventually gets his voice, and he still, in best effort to describe it, simply says, here's what I saw. I saw God, the one of immeasurable majesty, bestow honor and glory on Jesus. And I'm telling you, I saw it and I heard it, and that is my message to you. You see, in glory, what we find is that at the transfiguration, when Jesus is changed, God displays the glory and honor of his beloved son. The glory and death of Jesus have to be seen together. So this is scene one, and these are the first two points. At the transfiguration, God displayed the honor and glory of his son. And number two, the glory and death of Jesus are to be seen together. Now, this doesn't typically fit in our culture. We don't usually think of glory and death. Now, most of us can think of other cultures, warrior cultures, where it could be seen as a glorifying thing to die, especially if you are giving your life for the greater good. Now, the reality is that's exactly what Jesus is doing, but his death, his physical death, is not just attaining some physical glory. His death is, is dying that sin might be vanquished for a greater glory of the people who he is going to rescue. So uh, let's put a little word to this. This is going to jump up on the screen. This is Daniel chapter 7. So how do we see the glory of Jesus? Verse 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days, God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting, remember that word in just a minute, everlasting. Don't forget that out of Daniel. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Glory, awe, glory. But then look at what another prophet in Zechariah writes about Jesus as well. This is Zechariah chapter 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Now this is God speaking. Who is God's shepherd? It's Jesus. The sword, wrath, is being woken up against his shepherd. How do we know the very next line? Against the man who stands next to me. Who stands next to the father? The son. Now notice what it tells us later in scripture about Jesus. And he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit? Because his work was finished. He was resting in the work that he did on the cross for the sins of those who would trust in him. But now in Zechariah, where we are in the historical timeline of redemption, Jesus is standing because the work is yet to be done. And God, the Father, looks at the Son who is standing next to him and he says, the sword is coming to you. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And Daniel, I wanted you to remember eternity. And in Zechariah, I want you to remember the little ones for a moment. 
in the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. So what we see is that nobody is unscathed here. The father loses the son. The son loses his life. The one who deserved to live forever, eternally, in glory, receiving honor, he loses his life. And then the majority of humanity, remember we're living between glory and horror, the majority of humanity perish. And those who do not, those of you who are believing in Christ, are put into the fire. Nobody is left unscathed when sin enters the scene. If you're trying to figure out a way to navigate your life without difficulty, you've sort of picked a fool's errand. It doesn't exist. In fact, to avoid refining is actually to avoid intimacy with God. To avoid difficulty, to, to avoid God disciplining, changing your nature and your will. To avoid that is to avoid intimacy. Because look at how this finishes. I will refine them, I will test them, but then halfway through verse 9, they, those who remain, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. All of this death, all of this destruction, all of this difficulty for one thing, intimacy with God. An intimacy that was completely lost and abolished in the garden. An intimacy with God is bought when the glory of the shepherd meets the sword and the wrath of God. Now what we realize from this, everybody look back in Mark 9. What we realize here is that God is personal that God is authoritative. He, God is personal. He has authority and yet he displays mercy. That'd be the best way to put it. I think, yep, there it is. God is personal. He has authority and yet he displays mercy. He's incredibly personal. A loving father to the son and all of his children by faith. What does he say? This is my son, my beloved son whom I love. God the father is extraordinarily personal, but he has all authority. As soon as he says this to them, he says this, he, he says, listen to him. Everything that Jesus says, God says, listen to it. This is what matters. This is what's going to make a difference in whether you live or die as you live between glory and horror. It matters what Jesus says. Listen to him. I love him. I sent him. Listen to what he says. And one of the reasons I'm preaching this sermon as we're working through Romans is because I think, especially in our culture, but let's just say all of, all of humanity that has yielded to the cross, all of believing humanity, we still struggle to actually like, listen to this book. There's so many things in it that we've heard so many times, we're inoculated to it. There's so many things in it that we've heard so many times, we treat it like it's just this hyperbolic wisdom that we sort of need to know but don't actually have to live. 
Uh, there's this pastor, and, and, and he made this comment. His name was Francis Chan. And, and I thought this was a really good illustration. He talked, I don't know if I've said this before or not. Um, he was talking about how like our obedience to God can sometimes be like our children's obedience to us. And if I tell Ellis, go and clean your room, and then a few hours later I go in his room and it's not clean, he can look at me and he can say, yeah, Dad, I didn't clean your room, my room. And I could say, but I told you to clean your room. And he's like, it's okay, Dad, I memorized what you said. Go and clean your room. So the point is not that you memorize what I say, it's that you actually do what I'm saying. You, see, you, see, you understand what I'm saying here? That's not mine. That's all Francis Chan, but it's really good. So I'm stealing it, and I'm using it. And, and, and I think sometimes we're so inoculated to what God says. And when we get to the end of this chapter, if you don't believe that's you, that's really going to be put to the test. God is personal. He has authority, and yet he displays mercy. All right, scene number two. Scene number two. Drop down to verse 14 of chapter 9 in Mark. So the disciples, uh, more, more specifically Peter, James, and John, have seen this. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he, Jesus, answered them, O faithless, you faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, when this unclean spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, while this is happening, he turns to the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the, the, father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mutant deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, he said to them, this, ki this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, when we read a text like this, it's very easy for us to disengage. Most of us in this room, I, I would bet, do not have very many stories of demonic possession. Okay? But that does not mean that you do not have an understanding of spiritual warfare. You see, the reality of it is, you may not be foaming at the mouth and sick, but how is your soul? You may not be rolling around in the dirt and the filth like this child was. 
But how's your mind? You may not be stiff and rigid, but how's your heart? Is it soft? Is it compliant to God? Is it compassionate and kind to your spouse, to your children? Is it loving of those around you that you don't know? Is it loving towards your co-workers, the students that sit next to you? Is your heart soft? You see, we may not be able to identify with this boy being possessed by a demon, but we can certainly identify with our souls being foaming in sickness, dirt, filth, and rigid. And as we're going to see, fighting sin is a worthwhile battle. But what actually brings salvation to this boy from this unclean spirit? Is it faith, belief, prayer? Yes, yes, and yes. But whose? Just think about, this is how I grew up, okay? It may not be how you guys grew up. Think about how many times salvation is presented in the following way. If you would just come and pray this prayer with me. We're going to go through the ABCs. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe You go to this boy who's writhing on the ground and you say, Hey, 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 Kyle, Kyle, stop, stop, pray. Pray, admit, admit, Kyle. And the dude's rolling around, foaming, grinding his teeth. His eyes are rolling in the back of his head. I'm sorry, that's not going to cut it. Well, maybe what we need to do is just have him walk down during the service. Okay? Hey, Kyle... Get up, buddy. Come on. He can't. Well, here's what we'll do. Just get him to raise his hand. Everybody close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Kyle, if you would raise your hand. Hey, I'm sorry, but uh, his eyes are closed. Can't get the hand up. What saved this kid? It certainly wasn't him. It wasn't even his ability to respond. Jesus saved this kid. And what we find out about this story is even more interesting. A few chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, you can put it up if you want, I don't think I'm going to read the entire thing. Jesus, on a mountain, tells his disciples that they are given authority to cast out demons. He says it again, I think, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. So twice, up to this point, Jesus had looked his disciples in the eye and said, Hey, here's the deal. I give you authority, which I've got, to deal with demons. What is also so interesting about this that we read about, if you look at this in Luke 9, is that this is that father's only son. Don't know where mom is, if she's in the picture. Maybe things got too crazy and she left. I don't know. Maybe she's sticking with him. I hope that she is. We don't know. But what we do know is that this father has been here day in and day out because we read it. How, verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? Verse 22, it has often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. This father has been saving him and saving him and saving him, but never actually really saving him. And, and this is many times how we deal with sin. We, we save ourselves enough, right? Like, I don't want to burn to death. I don't want to drown to death. I don't want to die eternally. So I'm just going to clean this up a little bit. I'm going to do a little behavior modification. I'm going to adjust the way that I look or the way that I talk or the way that I do this. I'm going to clean these things up. And we feel like we're saving ourselves and we're saving ourselves. 
but we're being eaten alive from the inside out. Do you think it's a coincidence that after, now remember what just happened in the transfiguration. Do you think it's a coincidence that the father just spoke to the son and a moment later, Jesus is stepping in to help a father who's trying to serve his only son. This father is powerless. He is helpless because he has no power to deal with this demon to help his child. Parents, have you ever felt powerless in the lives of your kid? You can relate. Jesus steps in after we see the love of the father to the son to display love to a father and his only son. And he steps in because this father is helpless due to power. And Jesus has to know that his father is going to be helpless due to promise. And don't misunderstand my words. Saying God is helpless is a crazy claim unless you justify it with this. God has all power and all authority at all times and all places. The only thing that limits God is God himself. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God limited himself by saying, I am going to make a way back to me even though sin has entered this world and it has infected all of these people. The only thing that limits God is God and God has limited himself from not allowing his son to die on the cross. So you can't tell me that Jesus isn't looking at this father pleading over his son, thinking about his father who is going to turn his face away powerless because of his promise to you. I want us to realize that our actions don't just validate our faith. It's one of the things we've been talking about a lot in Romans. That the actions that we do validate our faith. But notice what, what Jesus says at the end of this little story. They ask him, why could we not cast it out? And in verse 29 he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Why did he say prayer? He should have said faith. He said to them earlier, the problem is, you're faithless. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to have to be with you? And then they turn to him and they say, what's the problem? And he says, prayer. What? No, faith is the problem, not prayer. What is Jesus telling us? What he's trying to tell us is that our actions, the things that we do, the quiet times we do or don't have, the prayers that we do or don't pray, they matter now. They matter because they're not just attesting to our faith. They're not just validating our faith. But those very actions, once we have been given a new heart in Christ, actually increase our faith. You see this? Those, those prayers, it matters whether or not you have intimacy with God. The sword coming against the shepherd that you may, may be able to say, he's my God. It matters today. Not just on the day you die. It matters now. But, but look at what else is happening. Jump down to verse 33. If this doesn't make you laugh. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. Does anybody find a little bit of irony here? Hey, my name's Jesus. You're a disciple. You have authority to cast out demons. By the way, three chapters pass. Hi, I'm Jesus. You're the disciples. You have authority to cast out demons. He told it to him when he was on a mountain. 
He's now coming down from a mountain. It should be a very familiar thing for them. And what are they dealing with? A demon. And what did they do? Not deal with the demon. And what did they argue about? Who's the greatest? This would be like if, let's say you have three kids. And they all come home with their report cards. And they've all failed all of their classes. But the middle son says, but I had the highest F. And you as a mom or dad said, that's what I'm talking about. You may have failed. You may not have a future, but you're better than your brothers. And that's what matters. That's like as exact as we can get. That's what's happening. No wonder they didn't want to tell him. How embarrassing. But it gets better. And he sat down and called the 12. I'm in verse 35. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, He must be last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him, this boy child, keep in mind what what we just read, him healing a little boy. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Told you it gets better. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Hey, uh, Jesus, we saw this guy doing what we're supposed to be able to do. So we stopped him. And Jesus looks at him. And he's like, what is wrong? Like, how long, seriously, how long am I going to have to hang out with you guys? So first of all, I've given you all this authority. But because you don't have faith, which is a gift, but increases when we spend time in intimacy with the Father, because you didn't have faith, because you hadn't been praying, because you hadn't been in the Word, you couldn't do this very thing. Now you're going to the guy who can and telling him to stop? So now... Your middle child, who has the highest F, is going to your neighbor's house, who got all A's, and smashing him in the face so that you would be proud of him. Do you see how ridiculous this is? But this is the heart of the disciples as they struggle with something. This is why your quiet times matter. This is why reading the Bible alone matters. This is why prayer matters. You do not need rules to be holy. Not primarily. What you need is intimacy with God. You can have a million rules. And if you could be holy by those rules, you don't need Jesus. But if you have intimacy with God, the Father, through His Son, then you will find holiness as well. And doing big acts like being on the demon removal squad. The first century Ghostbusters just popping in Capernaum, right? Who's got a demon? I'll take care of it. Oh, wait, I can't. Because I'm more concerned with what glory and fame I'm going to get than what glory and fame God is going to get. He looks at those first century failed Ghostbusters and he picks up a kid. And he says, 
This is how you bring glory to my name. You go to the ones who can't do anything for you. You go to the places on the other side of that wall with a difficult kid in kids' church, and you just love them. That is how you receive me and the one who sent me. It's not about you receiving fame. It's about God receiving glory. End of scene two. Here's my, here's my thought on the end of scene two. Our intimacy with God reveals itself through faithfulness to Him and humility toward mankind. Let me explain what I mean by that. Our intimacy with God reveals itself. If we're intimate with God, and, and, and indeed, this idea of intimacy is probably the most prevalent and simultaneously the most hidden reality and trait in these sections of Scripture. You, you see the intimacy of the Father and the Son at the transfiguration. You see the intimacy of Jesus with James, Peter, and John by inviting them along. You see the intimacy of Jesus with a child by embracing him and saying, such is, to these are my kingdom. You see intimacy everywhere. And faith is a gift given by God through proximity, through closeness and value time with his spirit in prayer and in the scriptures. That's where intimacy is born. And if that intimacy exists, then we're more faithful, right? If, if you're reading the book, if you're in prayer, then you're more likely to be able to share the gospel with someone. You're more likely to be able to respond with grace and mercy to your spouse, your boss, your coworker, your teacher, your brother, your sister, your aunt, whatever it is. Our intimacy with God breeds faithfulness in us. But it also actually increases our faith so that we can do more faithful things for him with this life that we've been given. And when that faithfulness increases, it is exhausted on humanity. And not in a way that brings us glory, but in a way that is humble. It's the one that's willing to consort with. The one who's willing to become lowly that displays a true relationship with the one who came from highest glory to the lowest horror. Does that make sense? Do you see that? That's why Jesus went from faithlessness to prayer. Because our intimacy with God reveals itself through faithfulness to him and humility to mankind. Let's look at our last scene this morning. <clears throat> Verse 42. Out of curiosity, let me go youth pastor real quick and make this responsive. Does anybody remember the two words from Daniel and Zechariah I wanted you to remember? Okay, everlasting, eternity. And then what was the one from Zechariah? Little ones. Way to go, Memorial Day crowd. Look at y'all. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This would be an example of a line that many of us have heard that we are inoculated to. What this scripture is telling us is that it would be better for someone to be murdered because notice they're not jumping. They're thrown, okay? They're not just like jumping out of a ship. They're being thrown 
with a heavy millstone around their neck, it would be better for them to be murdered by drowning than to cause one of God's little ones to stumble. So just picture that for a minute. Picture being tossed overboard with a weight on you and, and you're looking up as you watch your hope disappear as the light begins to dim and you start to question how long you can hold your breath. Can you get this thing that you definitely can't get off off? How long can you hold your breath? What's it going to be like when you eventually succumb and water fills your lungs? What's it going to feel like? What's on the other side of that? And God says, all of that would be better for you than causing one of my little ones to stumble because God is intimate and personal with his kids. He loves his kids. Now, in Zechariah 13, God is the one bringing difficulty on the little ones. But here, Jesus is saying, nobody better bring difficulty on the little ones. Now, these little ones are children, but they're also children in the faith. You can be 40 years old and respond to the gospel for the first time. You're still one of God's little ones, okay? So how is it that God can bring difficulty on the little ones and Jesus can rebuke the ones who are bringing difficulty on the little ones? Well, it's simple. God is bringing difficulty on the little ones because he knows that that difficulty, that that refining is going to create in them this holiness and this purity, this sterling nature so that they cling to him. And Jesus, sort of like a bride, it's going to make that we just had a wedding here um, uh, Saturday for, for Andrew Hearn and Kristen Hall. I think they're still on their honeymoon. And, and I was standing right about here in this cool little, I don't know what you call it, a trellis, right, that somebody had built. And I'm going through the vows with them, putting on the ring, and it's beautiful. And she's in her white gown, beautiful. It, like, the, the best example that we have of sterling, perfect, and pure, right? The bride. That's why God uses the, that as an example for his church. Why is God bringing difficulty on the little ones? Because he wants his bride to be sterling. He wants her to be perfect and holy. He wants to, to burn out that sin so that the sin doesn't actually burn them up. That's why God does it. And Jesus wants it for the same reason. He doesn't want that bride, once she is sterling and beautiful, to be spit on or mocked or muddied, or dirtied. So he's looking at those who would want to do that, and he says, it'd be better for you to die than to do that to his bride. It'd be better for you never to have existed than to do that to his bride, because he loves her, and he will not hold back his wrath forever. They both, Jesus, God, Zechariah 13, they both want the same thing. The thing is, it's not about us. It's about God's glory. Verse 43 that's why he, Jesus says this so strongly. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter a life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter a life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He's not advocating, um, uh, I can't remember the word. Yeah, amputation, self-mutilation is what I was going to say. But yeah, amputation works too. He's not advocating that. 
I mean, in reality, maybe there are some sins you can commit with two hands that you can't with one. Or two feet with one. You'd be hard pressed to find a sin that you can commit with two that you can't commit with one. The point is, Jesus is saying, sin is a big deal. It's a massive deal. And it has massive consequences. And it would be better for you to lose everything in this life and lose sin as well than to have everything in this life and carry sin with you in to the next. It's also not a coincidence to me that at the beginning of this chapter we were dealing with an unclean spirit. We are either struggling with sin or it's simply enjoying its host. You are either fighting sin or it is enjoying you as its host. And sin will enjoy eating you alive from the inside out. And if it does, then it will continue to enjoy gnawing on you for all eternity. And it is not a pretty picture. But God said, listen to what he says. And Jesus says it is an unquenchable fire. It is eternal. As his kingdom is eternal, so is separation from his kingdom eternal. Verse 48. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the end of scene three. Let me give you three thoughts. Number one, Jesus sees sin as a massive deal. But hell is escapable. John 3.36 puts it this way. Would y'all throw that up for me? I don't have it right in front of me. John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Hell is escapable. John 3, 36. As well as a number of scriptures in Romans that we've already read. But understand this. This is not popular in our culture. But it's what he said. And so it's what God told us to listen to. Hell is agony. It is not just this less than like wonderful place. It is agonizing. It is torment. It is a place with unquenchable fire where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. In Revelation 20, 15, it's seen as a lake of fire that we are thrown into. A different lake. Not just a lake of water with a millstone on our, on our neck, but a lake of fire that burns forever. I, I'm, I don't want us to be inoculated to the reality of hell. Because our culture is. They've come up with every other kind of way not to take God's word seriously when it comes to hell. Well, you can get to heaven, just choose the path you want, religious pluralism. Or annihilationism. Annihilationism. If you go to hell, it's only for a period of time, okay? And, and then everything will be burned up. Or you'll just be completely removed from all existence. That doesn't exist in the book. Why would we tell people that? Why would we soften the reality of hell when the very sharpness of hell is what draws people to Jesus? But we don't talk about it. Jesus did. He talked about hell a lot, a whole lot, because it was worth him giving his life for. And hell is eternal. Revelation 14 puts it this way. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath. This is the one apart from Christ poured full strength into the cup of his anger. 
and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. I'm telling you this because I'm convicted by it, not because I need you to be. I need us to be convicted by it because it's what God's word says. Last Sunday, uh, we were kidnapping fifth graders. Let me change the tone for a moment. Last Sunday, we were kidnapping fifth graders as a youth group because they're finished with school. They're about to become sixth graders. So we go, we either roll their house, roll their yard, kidnap them. And while they're not there, we tear up all their stuff. And we take them out to ice cream and they don't realize what we've done until we get back. And they know that we love them because that's how teenagers work. Um, you know how it is. Like, there's nothing better than your best friend getting hurt. Like, you know, like, it's who we are. <coughs> Excuse me. And so I get to, um, uh, not Sweet Frog, Freeze Frame, it's called now, right across the street. You know what I'm talking about? It's got a little break, playground next to it. I get there early, and I'm sitting down at a table, and I sit down at a table outside of their front door, and the table next to me, there are four teenagers sitting there. I don't know them. I've never met them before in my life. And so I strike up a conversation with them, and I ask them, hey, are you done with school? Yes, they're done with school. And then somehow or another, hang on, how did I get there? Somehow I, I got to, maybe they asked me what I did, and I told them I was a pastor uh, nearby and asked them if they were Christians, and they all said yes, like everybody says yes to that. Um, almost everybody says yes. And so they say, yeah, yeah, we're Christians. And so I asked them a question. This is like my new favorite thing, asking questions. Um, and so I asked them, I was like, well, now that you're seen by society as an adult, how does that affect the way that you live out your faith? And so they just kind of started thinking, and you know, they, it was not a deep conversation. That's, that's why I want to and then I asked him, I said, well, what, what would you say the gospel is? You know, looking for a little bit of depth. And just to, to paint the scene, it was like, it was a perfect picture for an advertisement. It was three guys, one girl, white guy, black guy, Indian guy, hipster girl. Like, it was every different kind of whatever. A couple of more engineering students at Northside. One was from South Atlanta. Like, it was a perfect little, like, sample of, of humanity just sitting there. And so I'm like, well, what's the gospel? And the girl, who's way too cool for school and has her glasses on the entire time, leaning in the back of her chair, goes, the word of God. And that was all I got out of her, like, the entire time. She just kind of sat back because, you know, she was too cool. And then one, the black guy said, well, I, one, one of the guys at my school did a senior project on the gospel. I know that it's good and it's bad. And, and, and now these are like professing Christians, right? And then this other guy, he's like, I don't know, man. I just had a bunch of Mormons come to my house and I'm not down for the whole religion thing. I was so pumped, right? And then, and then this other guy's like, well, it's about the word of God, right? And so like they explained the gospel to me. And, <clears throat> and I, 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 I'm kind of finishing the conversation and just thanking them for being honest with me. And, and, and the black guy looks at me and he says, so what's the gospel? And I was pumped. I was so excited. I let go of like my be cool as you're sharing the gospel self. And I was like, I'm so pumped you asked me, right? Like I'm dying to tell you this. And the reason you asked is because you know nobody at the table has the answer to this question. And all of you think that you're Christians. And, and so, <clears throat> or at least three out of the four of them. And, and, and so the guy says, so what's the gospel? And I just lay the gospel out. 
That's the glory. Do you want to know the horror? The reason I sat at that table was because right now I'm working through a class on personal evangelism. And I have to share my faith every week. Do you know how much it messed me up later that night as I was typing up this report for a professor to realize I probably would not have had that conversation if I wasn't having this class. That jacked me up. Why am I more concerned, like the disciples, about a grade on a report card than someone's eternal soul? I would have sat in that exact same chair and never brought anything up. I'd have gotten on my phone, checked Facebook, Instagram, sent a couple of texts, and gone on with my day. That's our problem. When we read this scripture, that is our problem. But here's the good news, and I close with this. If we look at this chapter, we began with glory and we end with horror. But I skipped over a section. I don't know if you noticed this. What sits in the middle of the glory of Christ and the horror of sin is this. I can find that in my notes. Verse 30. This is right in between the glory of the transfiguration and the horror of hell. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him, what sits in the middle of glory and horror? The gospel of Jesus Christ sits in the middle of glory and horror. And right now, you and I live between glory and horror. And all that matters in these years that we're given is, how do we respond to verses 30 through 32? It's all that matters. Do we believe this, the glory and death of Jesus are always seen together. God's word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has this displayed for us so perfectly. And you remember I read to you Second Peter? I stopped early. And the reason I stopped early was this. I remember when I was younger in my faith, thinking, Jesus, why can't you just appear? Then I would know, I would have faith, and I would believe. God, why can't you just say something to me? Why can't you just give me something audible? Why can't you just make a light flash or something? Do that now, and I'll know that you're real. That was my faith growing up as a teenager. And I grew up in a very Bible-believing church. But here's what Peter says. Remember, I read this at the beginning. We didn't... We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. But this is what I didn't read to you yet. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word. Peter walked with Jesus. Peter saw Jesus in his glory. Peter heard the voice of God. And he still says, that's better. Do you know how messed up that should make us? 
in our faith, thinking that if we saw something or heard something. No, faith comes by hearing, faith comes by believing and believing by the word of God. This is all that you need. In fact, it's way more than you need. There are people who came to faith and didn't even have this thing. And what God has given us in Mark 9, what Peter has given us through the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter is this reality. We don't need some experience. We need intimacy with God. And intimacy with God is found in his word. Do you hate sin? Do you fight against it? Why did the disciples not cry out grace when Jesus said, cut off your hand? Why did they they not scream progressive sanctification when he said, cut off your leg? Because the fact that you can fight sin is grace. It is It is a gift that God has given you now so that you can know that you are or are not in the faith. The gospel lives between glory and horror. If you have not responded to the gospel, that Jesus gave his life for anyone who would put their trust in him, then do that. But Will, I don't know if I can believe. Neither did this father I do believe. Help my unbelief. Do you want to believe? That's enough. Come to Christ. Let me pray for us as the band comes up. Father, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for this reality. I pray that we would see the contrast of light and dark, of glory and corruption, that it's not just seen in the physical or foretold in the spiritual, but this reality lives within our hearts. That in Christ and in him alone, we have hope that he will usher in his kingdom amidst a polarized reality of light and dark. Help us realize that Jesus hangs between the doorpost of glory and horror to those who will not walk through his sin-cleansing blood, to the faithless, to the self-righteous, only horror awaits. But by the blood of Christ, the door of glory swings wide to all who would walk through it. Father, make us the kind of people who live intimately with you, bringing about faithfulness and humility to our fellow man, that we would embody these characteristics of Christ and see if our heart is truly remade, not for our glory, but for the assurance of our faith and for the greatness of your glory. In Christ's name, amen.